0: Welcome once again to the Renew Democracy's Frontlines of Freedom podcast. And today we're excited to be launching season two. This is a unique approach to engaging the stories and experiences of some of the world's most courageous people. From them, we hear what they did, how and why they did it, and most importantly, what we can glean for our own lives. I'm your host, Ivan Mawaride, a pastor and a democracy activist from Zimbabwe where I led millions of people to stand up to dictatorship and was jailed and tortured for it. You've probably heard the story, or at least you've heard the analogy of David against Goliath. Well, part of the dialogue that precedes the moment where David steps up to Goliath is one where David has to defend himself from his own brothers who thought he was wasting time by challenging Goliath. His response to them is what makes me liken our guest today with him. He says to them, is there no cause? Standing Rivers is a citizen action movement that was started by four young friends in the nation of Bolivia. Torn by the environmental degradation of the beautiful Amazon forest by their own government, they came together to figure out what to do about it. It's a journey they had never been on but one that they gave themselves to completely. Janice Vaca Daza is the young lady that took the lead. As you listen, you'll be inspired by her resolve to pursue a cause, even though there's no guarantee that there will be a positive outcome. As always, you want to stick around for this one. Janice, thank you so much for being with us on the front lines of freedom, and welcome to our discussion about your work and your life and the things that you've given yourself to.
1: Muchas gracias. Yes, thank you so much, Evan, for the opportunity. Always an honor to know you and talk to you, and and to share the story of my people and our forests and everything that is happening here.
0: Janice, you and your friends at some point began to think about how you defend the environmental degradation that has been happening to what is probably one of the world's most valuable gems, the Amazon forest. And things were happening there that you were not happy about. Do you want to tell us about, first of all, what was happening to the Amazon and how did you and your friends decide that that was of concern to you?
1: Yes. A lot of people don't know this because they associate the Amazon with Brazil But actually, a big part of Bolivia's territory is part of the Amazon basin. And many of our forests, one of them, the Chiquitano forests, are part of this ecosystem and have been a part of it for thousands of years. And it has been degraded and attacked by the Bolivian government, both during the current party and other parties in the last few years, in a way that was Not being noticed as much by youth in my country at the beginning, but it became inevitable to look at this reality. And us as activists, we were really young activists at the time. We still are, by the way. But we (laughs) noticed because it got to a point where the fire crisis in 2019 specifically affected huge amounts of lands. We're talking of 6 million hectares that were lost that year. Mm. And this was not an accident. This is something that is very important to understand when you talk about the Amazon burning in Bolivia. Specifically, the Chiquitano Forest is not an area that will catch fire like other parts of the country. Some forests are prone to this. This is not the case. It has to be done by human action. And there is an actual economical gain to this Mm. in Bolivia because of the many industries of farming that benefit from clearing land so that they can use it for pasture, for cattle. But in our case, we got really involved with it because our movement Standing Rivers was really young at the time. We were not acting, not even for a year. We were doing nonviolent protests to catch attention about things related to democracy and the environment and human rights. Mm. But our work with firefighters had been steady and constant, and we had a really good relationship with them. Some of them were our brothers, our cousins, our friends, because firefighters had been teaching us as nonviolent activists how to evacuate people, how to do first aid, how to help people in case of emergency.
0: This is really interesting, and I want to go back to the very beginnings of it. You and your friends, I think they were four of you that started together. What were you focusing on at the time? What triggered this sense of we need to do something to fight for the environment here in Bolivia?
1: All of us had our own personal stories and reasons why we became activists. And all four of us were doing activism individually in different areas, one of them in freedom of speech and journalism kind of work. Another of them had been doing this in terms of urban areas and protecting environmental areas within the city of Santa Cruz, which is where they are from. Another one came from a family that had always been in politics and had a long history of working for indigenous rights and mass movements in Bolivia. And in my case, I had been trying to focus on human rights, and I was starting to explore environmental issues as well because of what had been happening in Bolivia with the degradation of the environment, which was very clear, the persecution of indigenous leaders and indigenous groups that were trying to defend protected areas that were constantly opened up for exploitation by the government, this was paired with the fact that our democracy was in decline. Mm. Obviously, it was in decline if all of these human rights violations were occurring, but it got to a point where the government was bending the decision of the Bolivian people that was pressed through a referendum that we wanted to maintain term limits on presidencies. And despite this, the current president, which at the time was Evo Morales, was planning to run for the fourth time to be re-elected. And the electoral branch, it's a separate branch in Bolivia, had allowed this to happen, even though the referendum said that we wanted the constitution to be respected and we wanted to maintain term limits and that presidents could only be presidents twice in a row. So when this happened, we realized that the activism that many of us, and it wasn't just the four of us, there were a lot of people at the time, we were all talking to each other and trying to see what can we do differently? Why are we so ineffective and unable to stop this breaking of the constitution and of the most basic human rights? And that's when we realized we need to associate and start working together, maybe take our faces off of it and try to work as a movement So the four of us followed this path. There were many activists at the time that did other things and they created wonderful things that have been beneficial for the Bolivian public. But we decided to go through a different type of work that focused more on nonviolent theory that looked at what had been successful in our own country and by indigenous groups Mm -hmm. that had already changed a lot of our history and shaped the future of Bolivia. And also, how can we do this in a way that more Bolivians can participate, that it's not the activist that is kind of the hero out there defending very important concepts, but how can we make this an action that all citizens can be a part of?
0: You speak of nonviolent action, and I know this because I have known of your work for some years now. Why was that something that you chose to focus on in terms of preparing to launch the movement, you chose nonviolent action. And, you know, sometimes people don't understand, you know, why you would choose that kind of a strategy when you are up against a regime that is evidently violent and has been violent before. What was the attraction to that?
1: You know, I love this question. I really love this question because I've gotten it so many times and I love being able to explain the reason. And it also falls in a bit of a cliche because... As a Latino woman, I've been told many times that because, you know, there's a lot of misogyny in our culture, specifically in Bolivia, I can say that with confidence. So I've even been told you ask for nonviolence because you're a woman and you're unwed and you have no children. So you don't understand the need of violence. I've heard that many times, even though it doesn't really make sense. It's hard to connect point A to point B if you think about it. But beyond who's Asking for nonviolence and the fact that in this case it was the four of us and we were young. I think if you look at the culture of in our political history, it's been very violent. And I think the life of all four of us have been shaped by political violence in one way or another. We have all seen this. My, in my case, my grandfather was also an activist, and he was murdered before I was even born. In the mm-hmm. case of other member, their parents had been followed and threatened by the government. I mean, all of us had something that had to do with this. So we wanted to participate in an option that showed the youth of Bolivia, that was the goal at the time, but now we want to show this to everyone, not just Bolivians, that you can participate in politics without necessarily having to use violence. And in fact, once we chose this path and we started learning about it, we realized that it is indeed the most effective way. There are studies by Erika Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, two American scholars, That show that the effectiveness of nonviolence is almost twice as high than violence when you try to use it for revolutions. I could give many academic reasons, but it comes to the end that it is very strategic. Besides the moral point, which has become the main point for us, you cannot fight a monster in the area where the monster fights the best. You have to take it out of its comfort zone and try to meet it with attacks that are nonviolent and that are out of what they are ordinarily prepared for. Because in states like Bolivia and many other countries that are not democracies, and even in democracy sometimes, the state has a monopoly of violence. They have the means, they have the weapons, they have the trainings, they have the people, they have the resources. We don't. It's suicidal to try to fight them through that way. Right. In our case as well, it was a very necessary message we felt at the time. And it still is because the constant conflict in Bolivia, not only between the right wing and the left wing, dividing it in two pieces is too Western. I think you have to understand the culture in Bolivia and the many ethnic groups that compose my country. There was a radicalization and a lack of capacity of dialogue, which was becoming incredibly dangerous. And it did blow up in the end. But we wanted to kind of create a pattern of behavior. That showed that we didn't need to end up in violence. It wasn't a given. And obviously, we wanted, if you boil all of this down to one sentence, we wanted to prevent more deaths. We were tired of mm. coffins. Mm. And sadly, this is something that did happen and it is part of our story. But there's an intangible here. We will never know. I think it was very important how much we focus on nonviolence. And I think that really helped save many lives, even though we cannot point at them specifically
0: today. You just made a statement there that really gripped me. We were tired of coffins. And that just really brings a reality to the work that you're involved in and the fact that it's not a joke when you stand up against authoritarian regimes such as the one led by Evo Morales and many others around the world. But you and your friends look at this and your strategy is you spend a year, one year, studying nonviolent action. Walk us through some of the nonviolent actions that you then did after that, after you spent a year with the four of you and training other people, I guess. And you were a small group, you know. Walk us through the first actions that you did. How many were you? And what was the response of the regime at the time when you did it?
1: You know, it was beautiful because the theory worked perfectly. (laughs) It was almost like the song that we've been trying to sing for so long that was finally in our ears. Because we had been reading about the power, for example, of, in theory, you should start with small actions, because you don't really have numbers. And in our case, it was just the four of us. And you start with persuasion tactics. So you start with tactics that tell people there is something that I don't agree with, and I'm willing to do something about it, come join me. So that kind of the goal of this first tactics is to get people to know more about the issue and to be part of a movement because you need bigger numbers so you can move to non-cooperation tactics. In our case, we started with leftivism. It was also serious and there were so many threats of civil war and attacks and arrests and political imprisonment, which is obviously very serious issues. But we wanted to show Bolivians we can participate in politics and make it fun. It can be attractive for you. So what we did is we started with this campaign on the national holidays where there was a big threat of violence, I remember, in many different cities. The president in that day was in Potosí, which is a beautiful city that we have in the highlands, in the mountains, in the Andes. And what we did to try to make it funny and kind of bring down the tension We called for a Star Wars protest because the government kept saying that the empire, the U.S. empire, the European empires, like it was all about the empire. So we asked people to dress as Star Wars soldiers and to wear, you know, the Darth Vader mask and stuff and try to get a picture of themselves with the authorities on the background to say the empire is Uh here. Kind of as a joke, <laughs> and we there were so many people that went out to the streets wearing the Star Wars masks and playing the Star Wars song in the background. We had such a big response. It was only four people. Oh my god! And one Facebook page making for this call, and you know, doing the tweets and everything. And so many people joined in different parts of the country. It Was so funny. It was so light, and it kind of brought a, an easier aspect to it. And then mm. we also did another mm. activism tactic, which was. You know, there's this movie in English, it's called Despicable Me with the minions that I love. In Spanish, the translation for the name of a movie was My Favorite Villain. So we did this campaign around uh, what is Halloween in the Western world. For us, it's Todos Santos, but people still dress up sometimes. And we said, dress up as your favorite villain. And then we made masks with the faces of authorities. And we went to this costume parties and we asked people, To take pictures with the mask and upload them and kind of send them to the Rios de Pie page so that we would repost them. But in the process, we recruited so many people. So it was all of this very easygoing things, funny things. And, you know, (laughs) laughter is a great remedy for fear. And we wanted people Mm. not to be afraid of authorities anymore. We wanted them Mm. to realize that these are people that work for you. They should be afraid of Mm. you. They are your employees. They are supposed to serve us. So it was kind of bringing this back. And the beauty of leftivism is that if you do these things and there's no response, in our case, there was no response, except from one municipal authority that came into our Facebook pages and started saying mean things to us, that was a gain. If they don't respond, mm-hmm. you show people, you can mock these people and it's fine. And if they do respond, mm-hmm. like the one that did, it shows you they're not as unbreakable as you think they are. And also, right. they should be working right now, not looking at a memes page <laughs> and being angry. You know? They should have more you know, you know, You're
0: humanizing. I love your approach to this laugh You know, I don't think many people have heard that term laugh where you use humor as a tool for mobilizing people to become aware of the issues that need attention and drawing, I suppose, the concerned officials into some sort of conversation or some sort of ridiculous action concerning that. And it sounds to me like you guys had the most amazing success, you know, doing this. So Standing Rivers begins to grow. Ries de Pie, it starts to get noticed. There is traction, there is interest. Walk us through how you begin to manage the growth and the kind of actions you begin to do beyond the humor and the laughter that you you were doing.
1: It was really interesting. And I remember that part of Standing River's life with a lot of love and tenderness because it was easier. It was tough, though, in the sense that although we were gaining some traction, there was a lot of still disbelief in nonviolence. And we were attacked, you know, and believe it, if you don't come from a political elite, it's hard to do political action. You're not accepted and you're not paid attention to. And we were the crazy outsider kiddos with memes and Star Wars masks. People were just like, who the hell are these kids? Like, they didn't take us seriously. But then at the same time, we could feel the tension growing as the elections were coming up, which were in 2019. And at this point, when we were recruiting people and we were trying to talk to them about nonviolence and we were doing these nonviolence workshops around the country and meeting new people, the first elements of violence started happening to us. And I remember this one occasion where they tried to blame this on us, but thankfully, because we had studied nonviolence enough, we had recorded everything. There was a case of infiltrators burning down an electoral building in Santa Cruz and trying to blame it on the youth that had been marching in protest in defense of the referendum that said that we wanted term limits on presidency on their times in office. So that was the first time we had to evacuate people. And we had just begun working with firefighters. So thankfully, we knew how to do this. That was the first time that we had to give first aid, the first time that we had to do Of human chain to contain people from fighting each other and separating them. I even shake a little when I remember that day. And that was such an, in comparison to other things we live later, that was such an easy day. But the first time someone throws a homemade bomb at you is something you don't really forget.
0: Tell us a little bit more about that. Someone threw a homemade petrol bomb.
1: Yeah, because what happened is that the universities for the first time were marching and telling the government and everyone that the university students were not in favor of the disrespect to the constitution so that a president could be re-elected indefinitely, which is something that the electoral branch was supposed to decide in those days.
0: Right. right. So they
1: were marching mm-hmm. to make sure the electoral branch knew where the youth stood. And what happened is that this group of people, and it was later proved even in the press that they were people that were hired to create violence by specific authorities that were aligned with the government so that later on this attack on, an, on the electoral branch building could be blamed on the protesters. I don't know if I explained that properly, but these people that were hired to create violence so that the government had a reason to incarcerate protesters, they kind of infiltrated the protests and they went to this building. They tried to deviate the protest so that it would go to this building and they started throwing bombs at it and setting it on fire. We, at the time, did not have enough numbers to lead any protests, but we did have enough numbers to kind of support peaceful protests and try to bring first aid support and try to see that there were no infiltrators, because this is something that the government often did with peaceful protests, create violence so they can persecute people. And we realized that this was about to happen, so we tried to get to the place, because at the time in Bolivia, it was easy to notice infiltrators. They always had backpacks. They always had their face covered, and at the time there was no COVID, so there was no reason to cover your face. There were always Mm -hmm. really young, tall men that would bring all the things to set things on fire and homemade bombs in their backpacks. They would try to push Mm. people to start to create violence and then leave. So because we had been doing this for a while, we knew how to spot them. And once we spotted them, we ran after them to see what they were going to see, filming everything. This is very important so that we can prove who was the person starting the violence, because they will often try to be blamed on innocent people. And when they got to the building, they started throwing the bombs. And, you know, there was a group of people doing hunger strike outside this building, also demanding that the electoral branch does not allow the president to run again, and that they respect Mm -hmm. the constitution. So there were about 20 people on a hunger strike. They had been in a hunger strike, I think, for over a week, so they were not in their best physical shape. Some of them were indigenous leaders, and these violent people come, and they start throwing homemade grenades at these people and at the building. And the tents where the hunger strike people were started to catch fire, and they couldn't run immediately, and they were also in shock.
0: Oh, no. So
1: that's when we come in. We did a Facebook Live transmission, so... All of our family members had heart attacks at the moment because they saw what was happening. But we run in there. We tried to grab the people to take them out of the tents, even though they were on fire. We tried to tell people in the building to evacuate. But turns out that that day, the electoral branch had told their workers not to come to the building. So weird coincidence. Yep. And once we realized there was no people in there, we tried to keep people, you know, people come in to watch. And then sometimes someone pushes them and then more violence happens. We were trying to keep people out of there. So we did the human chain. And that's when the police came in. And there are three different types of police groups in the city. I'm not going to take the time to explain any of them. But the ones that came were the ones that had actual permission to use weapons, heavy Mm. weapons. They come, we let them pass. We do a human chain again to separate people. The police was on our backs. We were facing the people, trying to keep them from going. And then the police is there. They see the building. They don't really evacuate anyone because there's no one to evacuate anymore. But then people were angry and they start throwing things to the policemen. And we were there in the human chain. First time we do oh, a human chain goodness. in there entire group history and we were just thinking if the policemen get really angry they're gonna start shooting and we're here first line with our backs and you're to the them. ones yeah oh. and thankfully didn't get to that but i remember because at that point we had to think where do we evacuate our people if they start shooting and there mm-hmm. was no way for us to leave because we were caught in the middle but thankfully it didn't get to anything worse but the day after, they tried to blame it on us and on the students and say that we were the ones setting things on fire. But thankfully, all the videos and the live transmissions were out there. So it was easy to prove that it wasn't the case.
0: Just listening to what you were involved in in just one day feels like all of that activity could have happened over Weeks and months, you guys were there protesting and then you end up being defenders of other people. You end up being protectors of public property. And the next day you end up being the accused. I mean, it's just so much to take in. And yet you carried on. All of you carried on doing the work that you were doing. I want to just ask one simple question, Janice. Why? Why would you carry on the day after someone throws a Molotov cocktail at you and you're accused of doing something that you were doing the opposite of? Why would you carry on?
1: You know, I think it boils down to what we said at the beginning. We were tired of coffins. I'm pretty sure if we hadn't done what we did that day, someone could have died. I think that was actually the plan. And we know now and we knew then that we are not necessary. The political things in Bolivia and just Bolivia's life is going to carry on regardless of whether we act or not. But what will happen if we don't try to stop the bad things from happening? At the end of the day, we knew we could feel the tension going up. That day was the first time I experienced violence in that sense. I had been hit before, but I had never seen a homemade bomb. But that was so small compared to everything that came afterwards. So small, like almost insignificant. I'm pretty sure most people don't even remember that that day happened. But we knew you could just feel it. And again, this confirmed everything that we were thinking about. How did the electoral branch decide that that building would not have any workers that specific day? Mm-hmm. How did they know exactly what time they were coming? Like this self-auto-atentados, like, this kind of self-harming to prove points is something that they often did. And we knew it was going to happen. And again, we even wanted to say that people working in there that probably didn't even like us, and we knew the more debts they were, the more people get angry, the more things get radicalized, the more clashes, the more violence. And it doesn't necessarily have to be this way. That is the thing. Like, it gets to a point where people think and the government makes them believe that that is the only way politics is conducted. And that is also why a lot of young leaders decide not to step into politics and do something else. And we miss out on so many beautiful people that could do so many beautiful things for our country. So if we don't show that there are other ways to do things, it actually takes a small amount of crazy people to change the way things are going. Why not try? <laughs> so after that, if anything, I think with that and the fires and the commitment just got stronger, it has the complete opposite effect mm-hmm. than they think it does.
0: You know, something that you said that. A small group of crazy people is what it takes. And I'm proud to be a part of a group of crazy people <laughs> that has sought to kind of bring change and just watching you and hearing you talk about the things you've done. There's both a sense of sometimes feeling like it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, but also at the same time, a sense of I'm so glad that there are people that don't care whether it looks like it makes sense or not. They're just there to do it. And I want to to just go back to talk about the fires one more time because there was one more coffin that you had to see. As you began to focus on defending the forests that were being burnt down and the reason for the burning down, I mean, you told me that the government had some contracts for creating new spaces to rear beef to meet contracts in China or beef supply in China. So they were allowing forests to be burnt. But you started to get trained by firefighters. What was that training all about? And how did you figure out that alliance? Because that's unusual, yet so genius in this fight that you had.
1: It was a beautiful coincidence. And, you know, it came from looking at movements like yours, at nonviolent leaders across history like yourself. We were trying to figure out how did they do it? How did it become so successful? And we realized that something that people don't talk about enough during the social media age that we're living on is that activism is a lot about physical work and we knew that groups like dr king's civil rights movement often trained in churches and in other spaces on how to physically react to attacks so we wanted to do that and few of us had street experience in that sense of being beaten on the street and we started thinking who can we talk to that can train us on this there were no other nonviolence movements in the country at the time that could do such training And that's how we thought firefighters. And then one of our movement members was an actual firefighter himself and friends with other firefighters. So it was kind of, I think it was God that prepared us for what was coming. Mm. And that alliance happened way before the fires, way before Standing Rivers was even public. And that's how we started realizing, wow, there are many things that they do that can be of use to us on how to contain people, human chains, all of these things that we wouldn't Mm -hmm. have learned otherwise. And actually family members of, Sending Rivers members and not just Sending rivers but just the group of activists that we were all there working together at the time were also firefighters so this is how we started meeting with them and then you know when you spend so much time with people you become really good friends they become like your brothers and sisters in a way so it was beautiful and we always went back to them even after that day that I just mentioned mm-hmm. we were asking like did we did it well like would you have evacuated some other people first like how did we do it was a really beautiful relation. And then when the fires began, it's been three years and I still get shaky. When the fires began, they went to the fires first as they often do because Bolivian firefighters are often volunteers that do this on their quote unquote free time. And then once they were there, they started calling us and telling us of how bad it actually was. And I remember having these calls and looking at these pictures and hearing from them before I went there of how their shoes were melting on the floor how uh, the clothes that they had were not enough. The equipment that you have as an urban firefighter is not the same as the one you use when you're battling forest fires. And the intensity mm-hmm. of these fires was just beyond belief. It's 6 million hectares that were lost that year. It was going up so fast. And there My were gosh. so many different points that were setting up on fire. So when they started telling us about this, we complete before and after for sending rivers. We dropped everything we were doing at the time we were preparing for the election. So we were going to do election monitoring and, you know, trying to see that there was no fraud. We were preparing for that. Mm-hmm. All of our focus was on that, but it got so bad and the fires were so big and there were so many people affected that we decided to stop everything else and focus on this because our alliance went to our brothers and sisters. So because we had small groups of standing rivers in other parts of the country, we decided to turn these groups from groups that were doing small, nonviolent, laugh protests into groups that were asking their neighbors and people in their city if they had any donations that they wanted to send to the firefighters. And we created an alliance with a national airline that will help us bring these donations to Santa Cruz, and then we ourselves would pick it up and give it to the firefighters in their hands. As more people organized to bring help, more donations were being confiscated by the military on the road. And in other cases, the municipalities or other authorities were keeping the donations to themselves and using it for other things. So people figured that the safest way to send support was through these kids who were every day showing also on live transmissions on Instagram and Facebook that we were delivering the donations to the hands of the firefighters. And that's when everything blew up and it got really big. Eventually, myself and other members of Standing Rivers, the movement was bigger at the time, We decided to drop our works because we work normal work jobs. But then we decided to take time off of work and go support the firefighters because you could hear the desperation in these people's voices. And these are the people that train you to be calm in a crisis moment. So when you hear them not be well, you know things are really out of control. So we decided to go. And that's when personally my life changed completely. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget all the things that I saw there. Because as many people in this part of Bolivia, I grew up in those forests, in the Chiquitano Forest. And I think when you're a kid and you grow somewhere, you develop a relationship and a love for the place where you learn to walk, to read, all of these things. And if you remember the place where you were born, the place where you create these core memories, and in our case, it's this big amount of green land, one of the best preserved forests in the world. And then you go back... And all you see is black, like no green. It's, everything is black until where your eye can see. That's something that is really impactful for many of us Bolivians. And I remember one of the members of Standing Rivers, Fede, he kept telling me, like, I can't get black out of my head and my eyes. Like the color is just like burning my skull. We need to yeah. do something This is mm-hmm. not okay. So we went there and then that's when we saw the conditions in which the firefighters were working. The fires were so big and they were taking up so much land that even children were acting as firefighters. I myself saw many children that would write with a black marker, bombero, firefighter on their shirts and they would walk in. You have people on flip flops, people that were not even trained trying to put out the fire because when the fires get this big, you need big machinery. To put this out, and the government was not providing any. And in our case, we also needed support from the air. It's not going to put out a fire to use an airplane to drop the chemicals that you need to put them out, but it's going to delay the fire that's going to give the firefighters time to go and cut it out. The government mm-hmm. would not give us permission to fly anything, even though this became so big that most people in the city got involved. There were a lot of donations. We tried to rent a small airplanes. I never thought we would try to rent an airplane, but that's where we ended up.
0: You tried to rent? We, you actually rented? We
1: rented small airplanes. and
0: A small airplane, airplane? My
1: friend, we had no permission to use them. And this is actually Gustavo, a member of Standing Rivers. And I'm going to cry talking about him because he passed away this year. It got to a point where we had no permission to run the airplanes to try to support a firefighter's work. And he said, you know what? We're doing so many things. Can you leave this to me? I'll take care of this. And we were like, okay, so you deal with the airplanes. Mm. We deal with other things, with the equipment, blah, blah, blah. Turns out this beautiful man decided to fly the airplanes without permission from the government. <laughs>
0: oh, my god! So
1: we essentially, I'm not saying he stole a plane, but he may have. And he may have flown it without permission, (laughs) but you know, people were doing what they needed to do to survive at the time. And I remember Mm -hmm. I had a trip because of work that I couldn't get out of. So I left Bolivia and I took the opportunity to ask donations from firefighters in New York, which I got, I received. And I brought these donations with me back to Bolivia for my friends. When Mm. I got back to Bolivia, these were used firefighter shoes, like boots. We're not even talking of heavy equipment at all. It was 16 Mm. pairs of firefighter boots and gloves and masks. Again, no COVID then, so the masks were a bit more difficult to get. But we knew that the firefighters were working without masks, so there was a high risk of them having heart attacks. I Mm. bring this in my suitcases, and these were used equipment, so they were Essentially, from personal use, they were not going to be for sale, but they still right. and and the government had said that they, in theory, declared a national emergency. The president Morales, he said this on a press conference, but he never actually enacted the national emergency. But did anything?
0: Okay, no, because I if see. the
1: government had done that, then a lot of the national budget, which would have had to go to fighting the fires. And they were preparing, we were two months away from the election. This could have even delayed the elections. And since we now know that there was a whole plan to commit fraud, they didn't want to have to do this. And by declaring national emergency, they would also have had to recognize that it was their own laws that caused this fire. So there were many things for the government to lose. mm -hmm, And they didn't want to do it. However, they said they did it, which is why if such law had been enacted, any donations should have been able to come into the country quickly and be delivered to the firefighters without any legal issues.
0: So, you bring in these donations, they're in your suitcases. Really, it's not like you have some big cargo plane, you know, they're in your suitcases as you bring them. And do they make it to the firefighters?
1: They did, but it took a lot because they stopped me at the airport. By that moment, I was already being very, since I speak English, I was trying to tweet and like be vocal about this. I was asking for donations. So they knew that this was happening. They stopped me at the airport. They let all the other passengers out. They take away my suitcases. They take away my bags, the ones I had physically on me. They take away my passport and they start interrogating me. And then they take me to another section of the airport they kept me there for a couple hours. They tried to intimidate me. They said that I was breaking the law. Why was I breaking the law knowingly? Why did I want to go to jail? Why Mm. was I doing these bad things? And I kept saying I had every legal reason to have this on my suitcases. These are boots, like we're not talking about guns. These are boots and masks, and 95 masks. And when this happens, people realize that I never get off the plane, that I can be reached to my phone. Firefighters start coming to the airport, They show all the necessary paperwork to prove that they had requested me to bring the donations for them, that these were personal use, that they were not going to be sold. Eventually, they let me out without my passport. I tell them that it's not legal to retain my passport. They eventually give it back to me. It was a lot of pressure back and forth. And then they kept the suitcases until there was enough noise around this event that they give it to me, I think two days later. And immediately from the airport, we bring them to the firefighters in the Chiquitano area. But this is when things start to get rough, because this is also when the news of the Amazon burning start picking up on social media and on the news. I give an interview to the BBC, September 29th of 2019. I remember every date. And that's when things really start to change. That's when I started getting death threats. There were armed men outside my father's house that would try to threaten him every time he came out. They wanted to get the names of the people in Standing Rivers. There are campaigns of disinformation against the movement and against myself. I have to start hiding and changing houses because of all these threats. And then there were people trying to follow me, but thankfully they never really got to find me, but all they right. found my parents. <laughs> Really interesting, because I also listened to your podcast with Leopoldo Lopez, the men that were mm-hmm. threatening my family had Venezuelan accents. According to what my father told me, he's pretty sure they were from Venezuela. We tried to go to the police to declare this and have this on record. They never wanted to take anything. They said no one was shot, so there's no reason, even though we even had the video from the cameras, from the neighbor's house, and you could see the cars outside my house. So. All of these threats and kind of, you know, the things that they do began around the time of fires. But thankfully, because later on, I realized, wow, that could have been really scary for me to experience, even though I did experience it. The stress and everything that was going on in the fire areas where you don't even have internet, like you don't even have phone signal. There was all these threats coming. I had no idea because my phone had no signal what was happening there was so much more serious than whatever was trying to be done to me that in comparison, it was insignificant. Like I was not in danger or in pain. The firefighters were, and that's where my focus was.
0: I wonder in your mind, as you are thinking about everything that you've done and all the things that you've gotten involved in, whether there's a point that you're thinking to yourself, is there going to be a breakthrough in this? Is there hope? Does any of this mean anything? Or am I just now swallowed up in a series of events that probably won't mean much?
1: Haven't we all had that point in this struggle? In my case, I remember one very specific moment when one of the four or five times I've had to hide for a long period of time, not just for a couple hours or a day. But there's been moments where my security was so at risk that I had to spend days and weeks just hiding, changing houses from different locations Mm. the first time Mm. being during the fires. And I remember this one time when things were really dangerous because I remember being hiding and that same day there had been, not so serious, but an attack on my family house in a different city. They went and threw rocks at it and they threw threats, papers that had my name written on it and saying that I was going to die because the government, because Evo Cumple, like the slogan for the Morales presidency was that he delivered what he promised. That's what Evo Cumple means. So he was like, You're going to die because I will cumple. And all of these things, because you know that between everything, many of the things that have been said, what the people involved in the protests against the government were all going to pay for it. And well, the government said with prison, the threats, especially if you're a woman, the threats of being raped and assassinated are very different than the ones you get as a male, I think. And
0: yeah, true.
1: I think as someone that has experienced sexual violence, hearing threats of rape, it's a very bad trigger and i remember being hiding hearing that this had happened to my family knowing that the rest of my family was also not necessarily safe and just thinking is this all worth it like it doesn't look like it is in this moment there's very few positive things it was a very bad day and being locked up inside a house and unable to move and to i don't know even see a tree was even more difficult for my mental health Mm. but You know, it gets to a point where you realize, again, things are going to happen with or without us. It's more of how lucky I am that I get to be part of such an important point in my country's history and Mm. be able to do my little input that is this one. And somehow the small things we did before had a big effect. We lost Pablo, the firefighter, but I think we saved many with the donations that we got from the entire country. And... Mm. It's been a trip for me because there were low points that stuck with me. It wasn't just one day. It was a long time. But it's gotten from, is this even worth it? To how blessed I am that I have this opportunity. And it's been also beautiful to see in this process, in this journey, how much good has been done. Not necessarily by myself, but by the people I've met with and the associations we've done. And this wonderful people like yourself that have gotten to meet. And all the blessings that all these people have brought to my life. And my Mm. best friends, my community, my family are people from the movement, are people that I've met through the struggle. And I cannot imagine my life without any of them or without any of the experiences we've had. So it is worth it because the blessings that come in from this work are so much bigger than the losses. And
0: Mm.
1: having that perspective, I think, is really, really important. I wouldn't be the same person without those crisis moments and they've taught me so much and they've taught me Mm. that in the end your freedom cannot be kept in chains like the human spirit is so beautiful and it's in all Mm. of us that these things just make us stronger
0: i can't think of a better way to end our conversation than those powerful powerful words that you've spoken and there's a lot of people listening that live in different parts of the world. Some people live where it is extremely oppressive. Some people live where it is less oppressive, where they are much freer than you and I would be where we come from. And my hope is that they've heard what you said and heard your story and found a trigger in there to involve themselves in something that brings meaning to their life, but brings meaning to other people's lives as well. Janice, thank you so much. And we pray for the success of all the activists in Bolivia. Thank you so much for being with us here on the front lines of freedom.
1: Thank you for the opportunity to listen.
0: Well, you heard a journey that sounds like it was written out of a movie script, but that's what people do when they really, really find a cause. And listening to Janice, you can tell that there is a sense in this young lady of not letting an opportunity go by where you could do something that just alters the lives of other people, if not your own. And I respect that about her. I respect her courage. I respect her ability to not stand back and to coalesce and to find alliances and just make things work. There's something about that in the way that she does it. Thanks again for being with us here today and join us again soon. Bye-bye.